0: the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Deirding is being marked as our rule will draw. And out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side. Waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Now the pitch. Swung in line to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration out of the Indians' third base dugout. Rajay Davis, a bullet run homer down the left field line clearing the 19 foot wall we are tied at six this is our tribe history presented by progressive a regular look back at professional baseball history in cleveland since
1: 1901 and beyond now here's your host indians team historian jeremy fedor Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome to another episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian Jeremy Fedor. And on this episode of the podcast, we're finally getting to that uh, famous 1920 World Series. We've covered all of our bases, uh, pardon the pun, and gotten ourselves from pretty much 1901 to the uh, October of 1920. A lot of it being the Cliff Notes version. Obviously, it's difficult to cover uh, 20 years of baseball history in uh, 10 episodes of a podcast. But we've managed to uh, get there, and we've finally made it. But don't you worry. Uh, just because we are done with the 1920 season does not mean we are done with the podcast. So hopefully you've been enjoying the uh, the ride, but I'm excited to branch out into. do uh, different time periods and eras and players. So uh, until then, here we are, October 1920. Going into uh, the end of uh, September, early October, the Indians actually had to see if they could have Joey Sewell be eligible for the World Series. And they asked permission of the Brooklyn Robins or Brooklyn, Brooklyn Dodgers if they would allow Joey to be part of that that postseason team because he came too late in the season. And it was in the newspaper on September 29th that Mr. Ebbett's announcement was made in a reply to a telegram from President James uh, Dunn of Cleveland in which he made a request to use Sewell. The Brooklyn president said he hoped Cleveland is successful in the American race and in view of the indictment of the Chicago American players. So not only did you have that going on with the, the Black Sox and that news breaking, but that Cleveland would be able to use their new shortstop who had come up late from uh, New Orleans and before that, Alabama. So that was really good news for the tribe. If you were living in Cleveland in 1920 and you picked up your newspaper, you would see baseball on the front page. It was everywhere. Everyone was excited and rightfully so. It was the first pennant for the American League Cleveland team and everyone was pretty amped up you be more amped up when you saw that in the betting world, Cleveland was favored. That was uh, one of the stories floating on one of the papers. Cleveland was very confident. They were getting uh, speakers, especially getting telegrams from other players. There was an instance of Eddie Collins of the White Sox sending him a telegram saying, congratulations upon winning the American League pennant. I want to assure you that none of the remaining members of the White Sox begrudge your club the honors that you have honestly won And furthermore, we are pulling for you to beat Brooklyn. Best of luck to you. Again, shades of the overhang of the Black Sox scandal that had really uh, blown up towards the end of the season. It kind of hung over everything that was was going on. And you see that too with a quote from President Ben Johnson. He said, the Cleveland team goes into the World Series with a clean bill of health. Practically every club in the league was under surveillance this season, and I am proud to say it, that the Indians are entirely free from suspicion. But they are not the only club. So, again, such a uh, a widespread incident that still lingers to this day. The series actually started out in Brooklyn. Cleveland had the opportunity to hold the, the first games, but President Dunn wanted more time to build some bleacher seats to fill the ballpark more to make a, a few extra dollars. And speaking of a few extra dollars, this was another one of those uh, rare best of nine World Series. In 1919, that infamous World Series was also a best of nine. And the long and short of it really is the, the owners said that they wanted, they had so many tickets requests to fulfill that having nine game, best of nine games would be a lot better than best of seven, that if it went nine, they could fulfill all those tickets. But also, it was a money thing as well. Obviously, you play more games, you're going to get more money. So the 1920 World Series was also a best of nine series. Anyway, the night before the first game, Cleveland actually left at 6.15 the night before. So talk about uh, hitting the road and, and getting ready to play. It really... uh You would think it wouldn't bode well for them. The first game takes place at Ebbets Field on October 5th, and overcast sky, the the paper said that the game was played under conditions far from ideal from baseball. A stiff north wind blew out of a cold gray sky and the temperature reminiscent of football rather than America's great summer sport. That wind, it As the paper said, wreaked havoc with fly balls, of which there were an unusual number. The gale carrying the falling sphere in a weird spiral, which caused the waiting fielders to circle under the ball like a retriever, locating a wounded bird. It was this inability to judge properly the direction of a descending ball that paved the way for Cleveland's first tally. So the first run for Cleveland took place in the top of the second George Burns. He actually led off with a uh, a pop up, sort of the first, and it carried and carried and dropped as George was rounding the base going to second. The first baseman uh, threw the ball in the left field, and resulted in a, a little league home run for George Burns. So he ended up scoring, putting the tribe up one nothing. Now later on in that inning too, uh, Smokey Joe Wood walked, and Joey Sewell singled him to third. And there's two outs, and you have Steve O'Neill up. And O'Neill actually doubled in uh, uh, Smoky Joe Wood. Next at bat was Stan Kovaleski, the pitcher, which you would have thought maybe they would have tried to walk O'Neill or pitch around him because Kovaleski struck out. But just like that, the tribe was up 2 0. They tacked on their third run in the top of the fourth when Smoky Joe Wood doubled with one out. Uh, Joey Sewell flied out, which brought Steve O'Neill back up. So again, remember that Kovaleski's batting after O'Neill and Kowalewski is no uh, Bagby, so he's not known for his hitting. And O'Neill hit another double that scored Smokey Joe Wood. Of that time, it wasn't uncommon for players to have uh, articles in the paper, and Brooklyn's Zach Wheat, in his post-mortem of the game, said, this is when O'Neill came up the second time. This was in the fourth inning with Wood already on base. We should have passed O'Neal and nailed the pitcher. Instead, O'Neill was allowed to get home. Gardner and Sewell were already out, and of course, we were reasonably sure to strike out Kowaleski. Uh, Kowaleski actually grounded out, but nevertheless, you know, it would have been a, a bit of a, a save. Maybe they wanted to try to start the inning off with Kovy in the next inning, but it bit them, and they were they were down. On the defensive side. This is where the legend of, of Stan Kowalewski is, is born. I guess you would call it a legend, although a lot of people don't recall Stan Kovaleski, But his 1920 World Series is one of the greatest pitching performances in Cleveland Indians history. And he goes nine innings in this game, holding the Dodgers to just one run. Again, in Zach Wheat's post-mortem of the game, he said Kowalewski pitched a wonderful game. Yet speed and exceptional control over a spit, for a spitball shooter. He fooled us this time, but I don't think we should have any trouble landing on him the next time he comes up. We found him and got him cataloged now, which, again, those words would come back to uh, bite wheat because they had zero, uh, zero control or zero catalog on Kowaleski. He was just on a, a different plane for the next uh, couple games that he pitched. Of course, you have Tris Speaker doing Tris Speaker like things, making great defensive plays in the outfield. So that wasn't of any surprise. And then also in the paper after that first game, it was mentioned that the players voted that Ray Chapman's uh, widow would get a player share of any playoff money. So that was a a nice gesture made by the players to remember their former teammate. So the Tribe goes up in the series one nothing. Now, the next two games, we're not going to discuss too much because they're losses, and who wants to dwell on a a loss, even if they are 100 years ago? So uh, game two, nothing seemed to be working for the Tribe. Bagby went six innings, giving up seven hits, three runs, two earned. Then Yuli came in for some mop-up duty. Uh, Going for the Dodgers was Burley Grimes, who helped the Tribe. uh, Gave up seven hits as well, walked four, struck out two. And the Tribe left about 10 men on base. They just couldn't get the hit when they needed it. Billy Evans, the man, uh, the umpire, was writing again in the Plain Dealer, mentioned it was Bagby's weakness was the lack of familiarity with his opponents. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, series tied, 1-1, going into Game 3. And Game 3 was a, a bit of a tough one to digest. The Tribe ends up losing 2-1 to in that game, and... Dodgers scored two runs in the first. Speaker had a short leash on Ray Caldwell in that first. He only went a third of an inning. In that first inning, he walked Ivy Olson. Uh, There was a sack bunt. Then there was a knee six. And then Zach Wheat singled, which scored a run. And there was another single that scored another run. And quickly, Caldwell was out. And Duster Males, the great Duster Males that we talked about in the last episode, came in and performed very well and held the Dodgers scoreless from there on out. But for the Tribe, it just it wasn't in the cards for them. They just couldn't do anything and ended up scratching one run uh, across the board with uh, Speaker doing the damage. But what would the 1920 season be without some adversity? Speaker was still really confident. And he said, we will win the series. He, uh, he didn't have any doubts about that. After the game was over, Speaker rushed the club to the clubhouse and after the game and left word that his outfit was to be seen by nobody, so he kept the clubhouse closed and wanted to get his players ready for the, uh, the trip back home to Cleveland. On the off day when the Tribe got back, again, Speaker was still as confident as he was at the start of the series. He had mentioned, we had just begun to fight. Uh, you know they had us down a few times during the American League season, but they cannot keep us down Brooklyn has us down, but they cannot keep us there. Also, an interesting tidbit, you know, sometimes it's you think of 100 years ago, maybe people are a little more stuffy or or fans are a little crazier now. But even back then, fans camped out for, for tickets. The plane dealer mentioned that there were fans waiting outside of League Park who came prepared to sleep and mentioned, too, that they brought automobile cushions and camp stools and gobs and gobs of food. There were women in the line, too. Some were escorted and some were alone. But the thought of a night in the open never fazed them a bit. And, of course, there were boys. There never was a World Series without boys. So uh, you have these fans lined up down uh, Lexington Avenue hoping to get tickets to uh, the first World Series in Cleveland. And on that fourth game, Cleveland comes back with a vengeance. Uh, Kovaleski, again, just pitches like a Hall of Famer, which he eventually was. Goes nine innings, giving up five hits with one run, one earned, and four Ks. The Tribe got its runs in the first, in the bottom of the first. uh, Started the game off, Jameson lined out, Wambi walked, Speaker singled, Wambi to second. Elmer Smith singled to center field, which scored Wambi and moved Speaker to third. And Then Smith went to second uh, on the throw. Then Larry Gardner hit a sack fly, and Speaker scored. Then the bottom of the third, Wambi hit a single, Speaker hit a single, which got Wambi to third and Speaker moved to second on the throw. Then George Burns singled, which scored both of them, and then Burns moved to second on the throw. And then in the sixth, Joey Sewell popped out. Steve O'Neill struck out. But our man Stan Kovaleski, the, the one that Zach Wheat was so confident they could strike out, actually singled and moved on a wild pitch. Um, and then there was a, another single, which moved Kovi to third, and then Wambi hit him in, and Kovi was helping himself out by getting a run. And so with that, you had 25,000 fans in attendance rooting the Indians on as they beat Brooklyn 5-1. to one. Again, the paper ran with the headline, Kovey's iron arm starts series all over again. His spitball acts like a thing bewitched when he works in this series. It said uh, uh, that it seems to break from yards away from the bats of the Brooklyn men. He is a mighty pitcher. So, again, Kovaleski is just giving the performance of a lifetime. Some observations that appear in the paper, there were small boys living in that area that were helping park cars. They had signs in their yard saying, park your auto here, 25 cents. Trish Speaker's mom was in town from Hubbard, Texas. The tribe appeared for batting practice wearing new white uniforms. Their left arms banded with that black Band in memory of Ray Chapman, so you've seen those turn back the clock jerseys we've worn in the past, or you could probably buy one on I'm sure the internet the 1920 jersey with the armband, and that's when the the tribe wore them. Now, also during this game, Rube Markward, who was he's actually a Cleveland guy but playing for Brooklyn, uh, got busted for ticket scalping, and there's a, a whole story. He was accused of offering box seats for 350. Dollars and then was arrested so the detective that you know put him into custody uh, they, they were going to hold off on on charging him till after the series but nevertheless not a great look and uh, you know you have this local guy too that makes it even worse for maybe fans that are, are fans of the, the Cleveland kid playing in the World Series and this brings us to the Famous Game 5 of the 1920 World Series. And if there's a top 10 list of Indians games that you could be a fly on the wall or, or go back in time, maybe seeing Bob Feller's opening day no-hitter or being a part of Eddie Joss's perfect game, this World Series game would have to rank somewhere in your top 5 because of all the history that was made and uh, just how it's still remembered to this day. Now, if you're not familiar with what happened, here's the, the story, the game recap for you. So on the bottom of the first, Jameson led off with a single to right field, then Wambi singled to center. Now, when Speaker tried to move him over with a sack bunt, Brooklyn pitcher Burley Grimes slipped trying to get the ball. So you had the bases loaded, and up came Elmer Smith. The way the Plain Dealer describes it, it says, Thus was the stage set for Smith. Twice did Elmer swing with all of his might fairly whirling all the way around as he missed connections. Grimes' third offering was over the plate but low. The umpire rightfully called it a ball. The next was a fastball, waist high. No sooner had it left Grimes' hand than Smith intuitively knew it was not a spitter. He obtained a perfect toehold and swung with every one of his strengths. Up, up went the ball over the infield, over the right fielder, and over the, the screen over Lexington Avenue finally falling on the opposite side of the thoroughfare. And with that, Elmer Smith had the first Grand Slam in World Series history. And in regards to that Grand Slam, Scott Longer, who I've had on the show in the past, uh, we had talked about this a little bit, and he sent me an email about something he came across in a 1945 interview with Burley Grimes concerning what happened. And Grimes says that he ran into coach Jack McAllister about 20 years later and was told that McAllister noticed whenever the Robins catcher called for a spitball, Pete Kilduff reached to the ground and rubbed dirt on his throwing hand. That was in case he got a wet ground ball. Grimes claimed the Indians batters would not swing at any spitballs, which I guess were mostly balls, and Grimes had to throw a lot of fastballs and curves for strikes. So thanks, Scott, for uh, that heads up. And I might have heard that too, I think, in one of the oral histories uh, on the Cleveland Public Library website. But nevertheless, one of those tipping uh, moves that players noticed. So Burley Grimes and, and Kowaleski, both two great spitball pitchers. And you know if you're a, a infielder, you obviously don't want to be uh, caught with a ball that's got a foreign substance on it trying to make a quick throw. The next piece of history took place in the bottom of the fourth. Uh, Doc Johnson singled and Steve O'Neill was walked. Uh, To face Jim Bagby, who, wouldn't you know it, hit another home run and became the first pitcher in World Series history to hit a home run. So not only do you have the first grand slam in major World Series history, but you also have the first pitcher hitting a home run in World Series history. So again, the history that was made that day. Still, the best was was yet to come. I mean, those were two great events, but. Fans in the top of the fifth were also treated to something that was more mind-boggling than the other two events. In the top of the fifth, Bagby ran into some trouble. Pete Kilduff singled at uh, the start of the inning, and Otto Miller singled, so you had two on with no out with Clarence Mitchell at bat. And with the runners moving, Mitchell lined a ball, and Wombie was able to corral it and, and snag it, and everyone was kind of Amazed, he caught the ball and then he ran over, again, tagged second and tagged the the runner from first who was already at second base, kind of perplexed as to what just happened. Again, the way the, the paper stated, it said, Brooklyn was dazed and so were the spectators. They knew something unusual had happened, but it was a full 60 seconds before they actually appreciated what had taken place and gave vent to their feelings by bursting into applause. Applause that was prolonged and deafening in volume. And there's interviews with Wambi later on. Um, He has one in The Glory of Their Times. And I forget which one it's in, but I think he has a quote where it's something like, you know, fans would think I was born the day before and died the day after. But I guess if you you know want to be still talked about 100 years later, if you do something that is so remarkable, it's never been done again, an unassisted triple play in a World Series, you know, you, you put your stamp on it because if that didn't happen, nothing gets Wambi, He's no Tris Speaker, and you wonder how many people would still remember what he did or his career as an Indian again, because there's so many guys, Charlie Jameson, for example, who were great players that, as time goes on, people just kind of forget now apparently the triple play ball is supposedly still existing uh, i think charlie sheen had it um it's just so hard to imagine that the ball survived same with uh with elmer smith's grand slam ball there was really no notice of where that went but again stuff that i'm always interested in in terms of the actual artifacts you know odds are while me just that ball went back and was used the next inning and You think about things like when Estrubo Cabrera had his unassisted triple play, he flipped that ball into the crowd. So it's probably sitting on someone's mantle somewhere, but you're unable to uh, authenticate it. So a podcast for a different day is our our first first Hall of Fame that we had back in the 50s. And I believe they said they had that ball on display, um, but we'll get into that uh, on another day. The Tribe won this game 8-1. to It was the biggest offensive output by the club in the series. And again, with all the history being made, they asked Tris Speaker what his thoughts were, and he said, we gave future teams playing in the World Series something to shoot at. It was one of the most remarkable games I ever took part in and must have been a great game to watch. It surely was one of which I could feel proud to have participated in. As a manager, I am proud of every Indian who took part in the contest. Everyone performed notably. I don't think I ever saw a bunch of players act with mere inspiration. No play was too hard for them to attempt, and for that matter, to carry through. They played with remarkable dash, and I can imagine that the Robins were carried off their feet by the spectacular feats they were up against. I'm especially proud of Bill Womby. I'm happy for his sake. I trust what he did yesterday will silence the criticism of him forever. Bill is a great player. Any team in the country would be glad to have him. His work in the series has been consistently brilliant throughout. He has been one of the most inspired, important cogs of our defense. What can I say about Bagby? Nothing, except he pitched great ball. Apparently careless at times, but always tightening up where there was a need for careful pitching. And again, his carelessness, I guess, helped uh, Womby make his triple play. So, you know, silver lining to putting guys on base. Now, game six was uh, another nail biter. You had one of the players that we spoke about the other week, Duster Males, getting the start. And you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to cover him in his own episode, a, because he came up late, but b, because he was such an important cog in the machine down the line, winning those games for the Tribe, and was a huge piece of the of the World Series too for the Indians because. You know, this is an important game to win. It doesn't clinch it because it's a best of nine, but it really solidifies where the Tribe was, was headed. Males goes nine innings, giving up three hits and two walks with four Ks. And the paper mentioned the self-confidence that he had uh, to the point that sometimes this is a fault. With Males, it is a virtue. Before yesterday's game, he announced very calmly, Brooklyn will be lucky to get a foul off me today. If spoken the boys will give me one run, Cleveland will win. It was a day for which Males had waited eagerly for four years. At that time, he was 20 and a green member of the Robins. Previously, he had acquired the title the Iron Man of the Coast because of his work in the Northwest. He had pitched in 60 games or more in a single season. He came East looking for more worlds to conquer, and manager Robinson of of Brooklyn gave him a reserve seat on the smooth side of the players' bench. Brooklyn won the pennant that year, and the Robins did not care to share the World Series receipts with one who was uh, considered excess baggage, and Males was released to Pittsburgh. So this was a revenge game for for Duster Males, and he pitched like a player with with his hair on fire that really wanted to prove, like, you know, look what you guys lost letting me go. Males got himself into some trouble, but was always able to work out of it during the game. Now, the only run that the Tribe managed to scratch out was in the bottom of the 6th, with two outs, Speaker singled, and then George Burns doubled him in. But there's a, there could have been a, no runs if you read that, what actually happened. And the paper mentions that the ball fell a few feet away from these new center field boxes, and there were fans that were reaching over to try to grab it and it mentioned a, a young fan made a wild leap for the ball. Now, had that fan touched the ball or grabbed it, it would have been a ground rule double and speaker would have been stuck at third. And then who knows what happens with that next at bat, but speaker doesn't score and the game still zero zero. So fortunately the fans were able to, uh, or the, the Dodgers players were quick enough to get at the ball. They probably could have slowed down a little bit and maybe had the ball get picked up by uh, the fan and, and become a dead ball. But nevertheless, Tribe lucked out, and uh, Speaker was able to score, and the Indians were winners at one nothing. Then comes the final game on October 12, 1920. Who else would be uh, on the mound but Stan Kovaleski? Again, his numbers for this series. So in the final game, Covey goes nine innings pitched with five hits and 1K. And his, his three starts in the World Series, or his numbers combined, 27 innings pitched, 15 hits, two earned runs, two runs given up, two walks, and eight strikeouts. A .067 ERA. So undoubtedly, if there was a World Series MVP to be given away in the 1920 World Series, it would be Stan Kowalewski. Just, again, one of the, uh, the most magnificent postseason performances in Cleveland Indians history. And uh, he's actually got a statue out uh, somewhere now near Notre Dame out by... Uh, uh, South Bend, uh, I think the minor league ballpark, but I digress. So the tribe ends up scoring their runs in the bottom of the fourth. Larry Gardner singled with one out. Doc Johnson moved him to third with a single. Uh, Joey Sewell flew out, but Johnson stole second. And then uh, Gardner scored on a bad throw. Then the fifth, Jameson singled. Wambi flew out. Jamie stole second. And Tris Speaker uh, singled him in. And then bottom of the seventh, Steve O'Neill, again, one of those uh, uh, unheralded uh, uh, tribe greats, one of the, uh, the best catchers in Indians history, doubled. And Covey tried to move him up, got him caught in a rundown. So Kobe went to uh, second on, on the rundown. And then Charlie Jamison doubled him in. But again, Steve O'Neill had a, a great series at bat and behind the plate, just the way he blocked runners from scoring. And with a ground out from shortstop to second base, the Tribe won their first World Series title. You know, reading about the game, there's pictures of Trish Speaker running to give his mother a hug in the stands and just mass jubilation in Cleveland. There was, at the Plain Dealers headquarters downtown, they had a scoreboard on uh, the outside of a building so you could watch the game as it happened for both home and away because not everyone could get to the game. So that was one of the other neat aspects I had mentioned, maybe in the future, doing a, a walking tour, some sort of tour downtown of baseball history sites. And uh, that scoreboard area, I think, would be a, a fun place to kind of stop. And, and, you know, the building's long gone. It's where Cleveland Public Library is. But just imagine all the fans that were gathered there watching the scoreboard because, again, you didn't have television and radio like we we have today some of the extracurricular stories in the paper were fun to read too it's usually tough to get pitch counts in that era um, just because they weren't published but they had counted Kowaleski. he threw 90 pitches 21 were called balls 25 were strikes eight were foul strikes and three were fouls 12 men were retired on flies and 16 on easy grounders that kofi pitched only four times in the fourth inning so he almost had a three pitch inning and then it mentioned too that trish speaker was it was tough to get an interview with him after the game he actually drained two fountain pens and autographing scorecards and baseballs in his dressing room as he sat receiving the congratulations of his friends who were lucky enough to obtain admission so somewhere there's two fountain pens worth of autographs on baseballs and and uh, scorecards somewhere so who knows uh where those are but i'm sure they're prized possessions and uh, speaker actually got a congratulations telegram from president wilson so he was a attentive to what was going on in cleveland now you might wonder how the team celebrated you know was there a parade down euclid was there you know any sort of trophy or anything um what the the club actually did the next day, there was a, a demonstration at Wade Park uh, near the Art Museum, where uh, there was a stage and there was somewhere around twenty five to thirty thousand people in attendance, and it just sounded like it was mass bedlam. People were crowding the stage, and it was uh, you couldn't hear if you were in certain, asp- or certain areas. It, it just really sounded like uh, confusion, but people were still so ecstatic about what had happened and that world series title but almost immediately after the, the plain dealer notes players all going their separate ways you know smoky joe wood going back out east and these guys going to go hunting and and figure out what they're doing for the offseason. so life kind of took over and it was back to reality pretty quick before i started this podcast i was trying to frame on how i wanted to uh to do it, was it going to be something a little more conversational or something more scripted? And I tried the scripted version and it just didn't work out. But what I wanted to open the first podcast was this dramatic story of uh, the 1949 Indians playing and, you know, little that they know as their postseason hopes dwindled in September, that in the stands were members of the 1920 team because that next day there was a reunion of the 1920 team. And they were going to play an old-timers game against some later players that were still considered old-timers, like early was on that team. But Kovaleski pitched in it, Speaker was there. And if you look at the Plain Dealer, there's all kinds of uh, great photos of these guys together again. And obviously, it's not the entire team. Uh, I think Guy Morton had passed away. Uh, Smokey Joe Wood wasn't in attendance. But you had Speaker and Jack Grainy and and all these guys smiling for the camera, and it's just a sort of irony, I guess, that you have uh, the 49 team kind of struggling to repeat as World Series champions, or even make it to the World Series, and the same was with the 1920 Indians. In 21, they they couldn't repeat, and just goes to show how difficult it was, but uh, they were in attendance to watch Feller pitch the, the night before, and he had a great game going to the ninth, and he gave up a couple of runs, and the the tribe lost. But you know, I don't know after that event in '49 if those guys were were ever all together again. And it was such a, a collection of great Cleveland players that uh, if you could be a, a fly on the wall, or maybe there's people still around that recall being at that old timers game. But nevertheless, it was a uh, it, it's a neat. Um, uh, event in cleveland indians history that you know perhaps is kind of faded as people have moved on but it was a perfect opening to uh the podcast if i was going to go in a different way but <laughs> i still wanted to to tell that story because uh, again you had kovaleski at speaker you'd all these guys together and i'm i'm sure the stories they could tell would just be fantastic and that is 10 podcast episodes worth of uh the 19, or at least the build-up to the 1920 team and how everything shook down. Obviously, there's a lot more out there. Um, one of the things that, I don't know if you've picked up on, I always mention the Plain Dealer. Now, there's also the Cleveland Press, but the reason uh, that I'm only referencing the Plain Dealer is because it's the only digitized paper available. The Cleveland Press has not been digitized yet. It's on microfilm at the library, uh, but... Not to, well, obviously we're all still quarantined and things are uh, are still closed. But being able to do digital research is a, a lifesaver, especially when you're producing weekly episodes, when you need to get information quickly. So uh, you know the the press, I'm sure had probably some different stories and, and different anecdotes. But we uh, we are with the Plain Dealer paper because that is what's easily available, and uh, hopefully in the future the Cleveland Press gets digitized. In the future, we're gonna—I'm not sure what next week's episode is gonna be. I got a have a few to pick from, but I'm gonna branch out a little bit more. So if you have any suggestions or or topics or players that you might like to hear more about, please feel free to. Uh, send me a message or uh, I'm on Twitter at jfidor or tweet at the Indians account or, you know, however, you know, send a carrier pigeon on. I don't know, but I'd be happy to dig into other topics of our history and see if we can have a little uh, fun with that. So the podcast is not stopping after the 1920 team by any means. It's uh, hopefully going to continue to uh, scratch that baseball itch until we get baseball back for everyone. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. And I hope you enjoyed everything uh, in the last 10 episodes about the, the 1920 or 1901 through 1920. And uh, next week, like I said, it's still trying to hammer out what next week's topic is going to be, but it's going to be something not from 1920. So hopefully everyone will enjoy it. And thank you uh, for listening. You've been listening
0: to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.